Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 31st, 2022, and my guest is neuroscientist and author Patrick House. He is the author of 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness, which is our topic for today. Patrick, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us very briefly your background um, in writing this book. What is your, um, you've worked in neuroscience labs, you've, you've got a PhD. Just give us a little bit of flavor of that. Yeah, kind of. How to get here? Um, so, I, I I studied mind control parasites during my PhD. Um, I I was most interested in basically why people do the things that they do. And of course, when you're a neuroscientist, you can't really directly study. Uh, it's difficult to directly study um, uh, people. You can do it, your your tools are a lot better with with different kind of models. And so, I was really interested in this idea of whether or not people are the accumulation of their own preferences and whether or not when one shapes or changes those preferences, kind of identity falls out or falls away with it as those things are shaped and changed. And so there's this kind of, in nature, there are very, very, there's a, there's a kind of handful of these cases of these little mind control parasites where something will get in and kind of shape or change the behavior of the organism that it's, it's host effectively, you know, and this is not, it's yes, it's straight out of like most 20th century sci-fi horror, yeah. but also it's real because uh, evolution is the, the original kind of horror auteur, I think. And um, the, the, what I loved was this idea that there was this parasite that, it, that could actually change mammalian behavior. So it infects a mouse and makes them possibly more uh, or well, possibly more attracted to and possibly less afraid uh, of the, the a cat and the parasite has to get to a cat. So in order to complete its life cycle, it's using this mouse to um, kind of as a, a like a, like a on-call Uber or Lyft to get from one cat to the next cat. And this really started me down this path of um, frustration. And the reason is I have this mouse I'm trying to understand what are you afraid of? What are, what do you like? What are your preferences? It's sitting in front of me in the lab and I can like stare at it and I can name it and I can ask it things, but of course it's not responding. Uh, and it, it's, it was just so obvious and frustrating to me that so much was going on, obviously inside each of these animals heads um, that we don't have access to. And this, this bubbles up to people, right? Like, and, and I started to just get really um, just, just bothered by the fact that some of the best tools for human neuroscience is, are still just language. We still just use words. We diagnose people often from the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Kind of Statistical Manual for, for Mental Health and Mental Illness. We diagnose people mostly with words. And this, this kind of intractable and never-ending problem of how do we get inside someone else's head 
And how do we truly understand what's happening there? That just became more and more of my interest as I became kind of flustered and frustrated with uh, kind of neuroscience tools. Of course, it's it's miraculous what we can do, um, but it's still the case that I feel we're in the, it, it feels like we're in the Babylonian era of neuroscience. It feels like we are um, uh, the astronomers from, you know, 1000 AD staring up at the sky and knowing where stars will be, but but not why which is to say, you know, we have this grand mystery in front of us and it's obvious and present. We all know what it's like to be conscious. We all have our own version of it, but we have so few actual answers. And I, so I, I kind of navigated a twisted path from that scientific side, which is studying this mind control parasite thing to a kind of journalist side where I, I wrote a few essays for The New Yorker and uh, LA Review of Books and Slate and various, various um various places where I just really started to want to understand um, why science and uh, why neuroscience in particular has kind of, the, the pace of discovery is slower than it seems to be in other fields. And of course, the brain is a kind of hunk of, intractable matter that's like really difficult to understand. Of course, one of the more complicated kind of pieces of matter in the universe, but it is still the case that like in neuroscience, we haven't solved anything. We haven't cured a single disease. We haven't solved um, really, you know, in the, in the way that the virologists can claim that they're really close to eradicating smallpox, the way the physicists can say they can study the origin of the big bang under uh, you know, and, and and unfold the James Webb telescope, which is a modern marvel of the world, one of the best, most complicated things humans have ever done. And they're just casually sending autonomous cars to Mars, and they're casually splitting the atom, and they're casually giving us GPS and rockets and planes. And over in neuroscience, we can't even tell you what being sad is. And And these things just kind of they just started to bubble up. And so after a long time, I thought to myself, um, what, what do we need to do different? And, and I kind of wanted to approach it like a, a translation problem. And I, I think we're getting it wrong. I think we're often talking past each other. And I wanted to kind of zoom in on that moment. So this, the 19, there's 19 chapters roughly of different ways of looking at consciousness. You do not, particularly say this is the right way or this is the wrong way as we are, as you point out we haven't kind of haven't exactly nailed this um so some of what we're going to talk about are, is not truth it's speculation obviously some of it you're probably more sympathetic to than others uh some of the ideas but at the heart of this is a mid-1990s the use as a, a sort of a a framework for thinking about this uh, mid 1990s, uh, very short uh, scientific paper about a patient AK, which you call Anna. We don't know her real name, uh, who has a um, a surgery. Describe that surgery and what happens. It's rather extraordinary. Yeah, it really is rather extraordinary. Um, and so maybe as a fun. Um, as a fun, actually, like a coincidental backdrop, I, I was asked to one year give a talk on Halloween. So we're speaking today on Halloween, right? October 31st yeah. at the San Francisco um, 
Academy of Sciences. They were like, hey, you, you study mind control parasites. Do you want to give us a scary talk about parasites? And I was like, well, I would love to talk about the theme of the event was monsters. And I said, I would, I, you know, that feels a bit overwrought, a bit, you know, yeah, I'm the parasite guy, but I'm, I'm not going to just straight up one-to-one -one talk about the thing I know. And I actually gave a lecture on this paper. And I said, I want to, I want to explain and give a lecture on what I believe is the scariest result and study in all of neuroscience. And this was a decade ago. This was long before I even had the book in my mind, but I've been teaching and talking about this study. It's been my favorite for so long. Um, and so, so first of all, it was performed by a, a neurosurgeon uh, here in Los Angeles, actually, which is where I live, uh, Dr. Itzhak Fried. And he, he kind of takes on very difficult and intractable epilepsy cases. And so this, there's a teenage girl, I think she was 16, and she had epilepsy. And the funny, again, to, to, to the point about the dearth of tools that we have, you know, when someone has epilepsy, you kind of ask them, what's that like? When does it happen? And that's as good as we kind of have. There are certain clues. Of course, neurologists are have, they're brilliant Sherlock Holmesian detectives when it comes to this stuff. They can, you know, they can tap your knee and tell you you have a <laughs> like a very specific uh, a cranial nerve problem. But like when someone has a seizure and it kind of happens randomly and they don't exactly know why, it can be very hard to figure out where in the brain that's actually starting. And so when you have a treatment, it's called a drug-resistant epilepsy of unknown origin, which is to say, we don't know where in the brain this epilepsy is starting. And epilepsy is sort of like an electrical storm. I think of it a bit like an earthquake. And you want to put seismic monitoring stations around the brain to figure out exactly how to kind of triangulate where the epilepsy is or where the focus is. And so they literally um, do a surgery where they drill holes throughout the skull insert electrodes, and then they can listen and they hope, they just wait and hope while the patient is in the hospital for them to have a seizure. Kind of like to, for, you know, you put a bunch of seismic monitoring stations around the world and you just kind of wait for the volcano to go off. You wait for the earthquake. And then you can say, okay, it's exactly here, right? And while they're doing this, you have, you know, I, I, I kind of lionized the James Webb and Hubble telescope a bit ago. Uh, which is to say, like, oh my God, these physicists! I get, I get like physics envy, right? Which is, which is to say, they get they get to do these incredible experiments, um, investigating the origins of the universe, things like that. But when you when you actually have a human brain open and a person awake, and you have these electrodes implanted, and you're just waiting, this is a James Webb moment. This is a moment where you can ask. What is going on inside the human brain? You never otherwise will get, you know, there's no moral or ethical way to open a skull and do these kind of investigations. So you have to wait. And the surgeon himself told me that he sees it like his bubble chamber moment, that when, when which is an old physics kind of uh, particle accelerator thing, which is to say like, you know, over at LHC and CERN and things like this, they're smashing particles together and looking for this tiny nanosecond long moment of anomaly where a clue to how the universe is constructed pops out. And the surgeon was explaining to me that um, this to him is the same thing. When, when this woman, when Anna laughed, that was his bubble chamber moment. He said that was his anomaly. That was his Higgs boson because he saw in it so many different stories. So what had happened was they have these electrodes and they're mostly for listening. 
But imagine if, if you put seismic monitoring stations around the world, but they didn't just listen. They also had like fracking capabilities maybe, or like they could induce small, uh, small earthquakes. That's very similar to what these electrodes are. They can actually stimulate the brain. They can stimulate the electrical kind of current in, in, in the brain. And what pops out the other side is like, Consciousness. What pops out is changes in consciousness, alterations in behavior. But you want to you want to mention, I think, that this experience is taking place without anesthesia, and the patient is not just awake, uh, but is alert and talking through this. Because this is shocking to me. The brain doesn't have any pain sensors. Is, is that correct? So yeah, explain it, that so- setup and why. They what they were doing before that she laughed. Yeah. So one of the remarkable things about neurosurgery is that the brain does not feel the brain itself does not feel pain. It's the like, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's where pain goes. It's where, <laughs> pain, pain is interpreted by the brain. The brain itself does not have the where would it send the signal, right? Like, hmm. like uh, you feel pain on the in your periphery. You feel pain in your big toe when you stub it. And it's because that big toe is sending a pain signal, an electrical signal that is unique to pain from that big toe all the way to the brain. But when the brain feels pain, it kind of has, you know, it's kind of lonely. It has no one to tell. And so you don't need to anesthetize the brain during brain surgery. It feels nothing. And so while these electrodes are in and while the surgery is ongoing, the surgery you could functionally say takes place over the course of a week, right? Sometimes two, because the person is basically in the operating room for two weeks. Yeah, there's a bed and they can, like go to sleep and everything, but they're effectively in operation for two weeks. Um, and so what they're doing is they're kind of probing and stimulating and activating and listening and all these things simultaneously as she's awake, as she's talking, as she's doing whatever she wants to do. And one, they're, they're kind of probing around various different areas of the brain to try to figure out, okay, does this make you see red? Does this make you feel, you know, hear Bach? Does this, what does this do? Does this make you uh, stop being able to speak? Does this, et cetera, et cetera. These are the, these are the basic moments of human experience. And, and they were probing. And that's important yeah. because they want to make sure she keeps talking. Because if she stops right. talking while they're probing, it means they're in a sensitive part of the brain they don't want to harm when they try to reduce the risk of a seizure. Yeah, there's this. So again, they don't know where the seizure is starting, right? They have guesses. And so they're, they're literally probing around. And every time they're doing this, if, if the, the blunt and honest truth is they're killing neurons, right? Every, when you're inserting an electrode, you are going through the brain to do so. If you insert it deep in the brain and you don't want to kill those that seem to be, um, the most useful to be a human in modern society, right? Like language is a tool. It's kind of, it's a brutal realist, almost like insurance actuarial chart thing. If you're going to ruin something about the brain for medical reasons, if you're going to go in there, you're going to take some losses, you're going to kill it, you're going to damage a few neurons. You do not, you want to preserve more than anything, the ability to speak. And so everybody has their speech center in approximately the same place, but it it varies slightly by millimeters here and there. Everyone's got slightly different shapes and sizes and, and things going on and architecture as well to the brain. And so they're they're keeping her talking and talking and they, you know, they want to keep going and they want to make sure as they're stimulating uh, that they're not interfering with speech or they're not interfering with like a basic human capability and emotion. And 
as they're doing this, she, uh, they get to one area and they probe it and she laughs and they ask her, why did you laugh? And she says, um, because you guys are just so funny standing around like that. And then they're going around, they're probing There's, you know, the surgeon sitting back there on a computer, pushing buttons and entering the like stimulation protocol and how many Hertz and what, at what rate and everything. Um, and then they do it again and she laughs again. And then she's, they ask her why she laughed just to kind of keep her conversational. And she's like, well, the, the picture of the horse there is, is funny. Um, and they, you know, I've seen video of, of her giving these answers and she finds the, I think she's holding a fork cause she's eating. And at one other point she laughs and then says, well, this fork is really funny. And the reason I gave this talk on Halloween, the reason I gave this talk as, and, and, and I've spoken about it as the, or sorry, this, this, um, uh, uh, this result basically is the scariest in all of neuroscience is because to me, that means that, so she's confabulating, it's called confabulation is the technical kind of term of art, which is she's confabulating these reasons. The real reason is the surgeon has an electrode and is stimulating the supplementary motor area, which is causing those neurons to respond to that electrical current, which connects down to her throat, which discharges a stereotyped kind of central pattern generator of uh, uh, muscular activity, which like bounces air around in her throat and compresses it and expels it such that we in the room who are listening perceive it as laughter, right? Like that's the mechanistic, almost like David Humean billiard balls striking each other way you might describe it. But from the inside of her subjective experience, she doesn't know when they're stimulating or not, right? Again, no pain. So she doesn't know when it's coming. Um, she just knows she laughed. She laughed for, from her point of view, she laughed for absolutely no reason. And she had to give it a reason. So there are two terrifying things there to me that I think explain all of interpersonal conflict probably, which is, or maybe a vast majority, which is like, she couldn't say, I don't know. The brain doesn't say, I don't know. And the brain comes up with some reason that is plausible, that is efficient, that makes sense on a storytelling kind of basis. You know, those are good stories. It's plausible that the horse was funny, that the doctors standing around were funny, that the fork was funny. They weren't, but they could be. And so what's so scary to me about that is the idea that you then ask yourself why you laugh ever. You ask yourself why you love the person you say you love. You ask yourself why you like the activities you like. And the question is, are your answers correct? Or are you lying to yourself, right? How do, we, how do we know when we laugh and our brain comes up with the reason why we laughed and then we explain it because someone has asked us? How do we ever know that that's really the reason? And so I kind of ended up in almost this, uh, uh, like a, almost like a Zeno's paradox where I was unpacking each, each, each of the reasons I gave for doing something felt like half true, uh, every time I ask myself, why did I do something? Why do I like something? I, I found myself with half the confidence I had previously because of this study. And then I asked myself again, half, 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 and it basically went down to zero. So we, we all understand there are moments when we're with someone who laughs. In fact, we have a name for it. It's called nervous laughter. It's not because something was funny. It, it's some anxiety in the part of the laugher and if you're thoughtful, you can notice it in yourself and you can realize, gee, I wasn't laughing because I thought something was funny. I was laughing because I was nervous. 
And you can, in theory, you could try to control that in the future. You could observe it in yourself and try to understand why and in what situations that kind of laughter gets provoked. But that's such a trivial <laughs> example of the wide expansive human experience, reaction, um, facial expressions, things we blurt out, um, and things we do. And, of course, raises deep, deep questions about free will and about our scientific understanding of something that is not merely a small corner of our world. We could argue it's the most important piece of our humanity, the feelings we have inside us and how those feelings manifest in our behavior and reactions and comments and the fact that we don't quite understand them or maybe even worse, hardly understand them at all is uh, is deeply disturbing. <laughs> yeah, and you know, language Language is a highly compressed, like kind of low bit rate tool that we use to try our best, right? We, we try our best and language kind of has, has mimicked the, the pros and cons of evolution by natural selection. It is good enough. It's not how you might define how to understand respective interiority from scratch. We might come up with a different or better way. You know, these things are important and we use language as this kind of um, infallible or kind of there's a, there's a presumption of infallibility with, with our language where we assume that when you ask someone, unless they're directly lying, we assume that there's something close to the truth there in terms of what they're feeling or experiencing. And this, the, the hard part is recognizing that occasionally language is even language is in service of a mind tricking itself. So when we are then two steps removed or one step removed, we're just, it's a game of telephone. And this to me is, you know, I don't care about people uh, deceit or lying. I mean, of course the, the world is falling apart because of such things, but on a scientific level, um, I, you know, the thing I want to know is what is actually happening inside the brain. And if you think about language as like a non-invasive um, tool, uh, non-invasive actual imaging technology for the brain, which it kind of is, um, you know, fMRI is one way. Uh, uh, you have all kinds of tools and technologies to kind of peer into the mind, but we use language because it's cheap and it mostly works, but it has flaws. And what I find so fascinating here, and the reason I have 19 ways of looking at consciousness, and the reason why this story is told 19 times, is because of this, mostly it's, it's an uh, homage to this book that I read a long, long time ago called uh, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, which was, who, who was a poet in, I think, 800s, 800s China, an ancient Chinese poet. And he wrote this very, very short poem. Like, that's what I loved about the, the, the nature paper, electric currents, it's laughter. It's also short. It, like for a scientific paper of such amazing finding, you know, the, 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 some of the biggest ones in the history of science are the shortest. The, the, DN, the structure of DNA paper, I think, is similar length. Like it's one or two pages, right? Um, and so you have this like highly compressed knowledge. But, um, you know, and you could think of a poem similarly. 
And so there's a four-line poem. And this book, 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei, is the same poem translated 19 different times by various authors of different languages and time and contexts and places and different countries throughout, throughout you know, 1400 years. And what I loved is that the, pre- this, the seemingly unwritten premise of the book is that none of these translations are correct. The original is lost. So the original poem, it, there is no copy. And I, like consciousness, right? The original, whatever creature was the first to experience a subjective feeling of self, that creature is lost to us. It is 3 billion years old, probably. The original is lost. All we have are translations. And I think there's something to the fact that you might be able to take the methodologies and toolkits of translation science, which is its own thing, where they're confronting many of these same questions. What are the limits of language? What are the the, the fault lines in language. Um, you know, what does it mean to translate something? How do you, when an author writes something, they're, they're engaging in a translative act. And then you have to take that language and do it one more time and one more time. And it's like compressing an image or a bitmap or sound. You do it too many times and it's lossy. And the question to me being kind of how do we from you know, if you took a like a raw image, a very high resolution image and compressed and compressed and JPEG and JPEG, you'd, you'd end up with some bitmap that you couldn't understand. And the my worry is that when we use things like language, we're basically getting the bitmap version of, of what it's like inside someone's head. I think I've quoted this before. It's um, George Steiner, the essayist and author from the last half of the 19th of the 20th century. Fascinating writer. He has a book called After Babel, which talks about translation and basically says that when you read a poem from the 1500s, you can't understand it. You get an idea about it, but you can't understand it because you don't have the language. Uh, there's a lot of words in there that are that are different, don't exist anymore, have died off. But then when you read 1920s, he gives the example of, of Noel Coward. You read a scene from a Noel Coward play. Because you're not fully immersed in 1920s culture, there are expressions and intonations in that dialogue that you don't fully understand. And his point is quite simple, which is that all language is a form of translation. That, as you said, you have a thought, or what you think is a thought, <laughs> it's even a deeper, deep question, right. but you have a thought in your head, you blurt out, I'm being cruel, you say something to me, I hear it. I interpret it in my own way. I translate it into my brain, and it's not what was in your brain. I'm pretty confident about that. I'm, I'm not sure if the differences are small, insignificant, or large, but I'm pretty sure they're not the same thing. And that's troubling, and, and it's fascinating to think about it. And you said, you, you kind of smiled when you said it, I think, that this is the root of all problems of human interaction. But, of course, you're right, because half the time, the things I say aren't the things you hear, or the things that I want to say are not the things that you've heard. And the, I mean, it's just uh, a deep, essential aspect of the human experience that you can't get into my brain and I can't get into yours, and an fMRI is never going to do it. Uh, It will show you the physical things that are happening in the brain the problem is, is that there seems to be more going on or the physical parts that we understand, at least today in 2022, are not sufficient. 
And, and just to use one more example, long-time econ talk concept, which I love, this idea of suitcase words, uh, the idea that that you use a word that, of course, I know what that means. And I use that same word 10 minutes later. And of course, I know and you know what that means. But we don't mean the same thing. We've crammed something else into it. Each of us, I put my clothes, you had your dirty laundry, I have mine. And we mean something quite different. And it's actually, you know, you could be depressed about this. I kind of go the other way. It's a miracle that we can forget the fact that you're sitting in L.A. and I'm in Jerusalem. That's amazing by itself. But the fact that we can actually have some semblance of, of, of cooperation, intellectual cooperation, is extraordinary. So I'm going to look that's, at the bright that's side. A very good point. <laughs> it's a very good point. I don't. I don't. I don't wish to malign language fully. It's uh, with respect to what it has accomplished, right? Um, so, but maybe, maybe like. So what's funny is probably right now people are listening, um, or watching, and thinking, okay, 19 ways of looking at consciousness. Say, uh, consciousness is a suitcase word, of course. Every single person, you know, this this was a literal conversation we had to have in the marketing kind of meeting about this book, which is depending on the city, depending like consciousness, the word is loaded. It's an extraordinarily loaded word that everyone is going to take their own interpretation into just their deciphering of the title. And so kind of how do we get, how, like, how do we indicate that what we mean here is the scientific version, not the, you know, kind of uh, self-helpy version. Yeah. Um, and I, I do believe fundamentally that science can be self-helpy. So I don't, I don't want to make that distinction again. I don't, I don't, the books behind me, I don't do genre, um, or I rather I don't categorize by genre. Um, but, it, and I mean, to that point, I actually almost want there to be a book, maybe I have to write it, which is like phenomenological relationship counseling, right? Which is this idea that actually when two people are talking past each other, it's quite possible that a way to figure out why they're talking past each other is to unpack how, how differently they see the world truly how they see the world differently. And what's funny is I know there are some people right now, because I've had this conversation thousands of times with neuroscientists, even neuroscientists, um, who are thinking that what I mean by that is something very different than what I actually mean by that. So let me explain what I mean by that uh, with examples. So there are about 15% of people cannot see 3D if they go to a 3D movie, right? So this seems very simple, but like they put on the glasses and the movie looks exactly the same to them. I love 3D movies. I have a 3D projector behind the screen right now is a large, huge screen that comes down. And I, have, I, I paid twice for this projector that can project in 3D because they give me ecstatic incandescent pleasure. I love them. I've hosted dinner parties and movie screenings where people come over and they can't see in 3D. So they just don't like it as a technology or tool. And when we think about the critical, when I say critical, I mean, um, do you or do you not like something? Differences. And we think about how many different kinds of ways to see and interact with the world there are. It's quite possible and plausible, I think, that our preferences are shaped by this underlying phenomenology, this underlying way of seeing, hearing, touching, and smelling the world. There are people out there that have no inner monologue that have no voice on the inside of their head. Zero. It's, it's, it's empty. It's mute. It's silent. Aphantasia was something discovered in 2016 by Adam Zeman, um, a UK scientist. And the idea is that over and over, there's this observation that some people don't seem to have mental images on the inside of their head. They close their eyes 
and nothing pops up. There's no visual image. There's no mental image. And this doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, maybe. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it's kind of like, oh, oh, is that just like colorblindness? Is that just, you know, who, who, who really cares? But I, so let me just give a personal example. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is, I guess, where I wanted to, maybe it should be in the self-help section, actually. Let's, let's, let's put it there. Um, I was dating a woman. We had an argument about FaceTime. And I hate FaceTime. We were not in the same room, you know, remote, remote communication on my phone, on this little laptop. I hate the, the FaceTime communication with a tiny little picture of myself in the bottom. I find it awkward and weird and they're mirrored. And um, she kept saying, like, can we FaceTime? And I kept asking, can we please, I implored, can we please just talk on the phone? And clues here, which we, we should have unpacked these earlier. She used to keep on her laptop a folder of of with my name on it, with just pictures of my face. And while we were speaking on the phone, she would cycle through the pictures of my face. And I thought this at first, I was like, okay, that's maybe endearing. Maybe that's a little weird, but I didn't want to pass judgment. You know, it's like a little creepy at first. That was honestly my interpretation. Um, and um, so we eventually ended up having this kind of spat about whether or not we would FaceTime me saying, I hate it. She's saying, I would really love to do it. We discovered she has, halfway through our relationship, we discovered she has aphantasia. So she has zero images. She didn't know this until uh, reading it on the internet, like a, you know, some article came out about it. And she was like, oh, wait a second. Wait, can you close your eyes? We're in our 30s. These are adult, we are adults in our 30s, you know, successfully operating in the world, both of us. And we had entirely different inner pictures. She had none, and I have an extraordinarily rich visual imagination. So when I was sitting on the phone, I could imagine us going for a walk. I would, I would sit and play in our memories and our nostalgia and revel in everything that we had ever done. And to me, that was richer than the, anything FaceTime could offer. Whereas she thought and had interpreted my, negate, you know, my disinterest as I didn't want to see her. And she said, you know, when you're not in the room, I have no idea what you look like. When you're not in the room, I cannot picture your face. The reason she cycled through photos while we were on the phone was because she needed, she wanted to see my face as we were speaking. So this little thing, so, so here's the thing. Imagine yourself as the relationship counselor, right? She and I go in and we're telling our, our sides of the story. The actual answer is that we have different vividness quotas on the insides of our heads with respect to imagination, which is bubbling up into this interpersonal conflict about how we share the world. And it has nothing and to do over and, has nothing to do with your willingness to be considerate of the needs of the other person. You have no you're clueless, both of you. Yeah. And and as soon as I, as soon as she discovered that and we had this conversation, I said, oh my God, is 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 your desire for FaceTime because you can't see me? Of course we can FaceTime forever. Like, oh, like, of course, I have no idea. And, you know, this, if this sounds like a one-off anecdote, you know, there are, I think there are, there are so many examples of this. Um, uh, there, there are two interviews I read about with, from Isaac Asimov, with Isaac Asimov, the, the science fiction writer, the great writer of many, many and all genres. And he says a few interesting things. One, he says, um, I can never write a script because it's a visual medium. And on the inside of my head, there are no images. And there's a critic who said his work is talky, literally talky. 
And he was responding to that saying like, yeah, I, you know, of course it's talky. Like that's all that happens. And on the inside of his head and he's being interviewed again, a separate interview by, with uh, Charlie Rose. And Isaac Asimov says, yeah, you know, I, I, I can be standing next to my daughter and I don't even recognize her. Like, I don't know what she looks like when she's not there. And in my retroactive mind, I'm like, he obviously has aphantasia, right? Like, and so his books end up being talky. Uh, um, and the critical response, the person who read Isaac Asimov's book and did, called it talky probably did not have aphantasia. And so you have two people who are, you know, one person who's panning his book and another guy who's just trying to write. And, you know, and you have this mismatch. And that mismatch, I think, is everywhere. Uh, the, the first time the phrase stream of consciousness was ever used, the author wrote back an angry letter to the editor saying, um, to her, her consciousness sits, sits stiller than a tree. Uh, Vladimir Nabokov wrote, he got, he got this story rejected by the New Yorker called The Vane Sisters, a short story. And uh, I think the editor at the time was Catherine White. And he wrote her, again, an angry letter. I guess that's what slighted novelists do. And the angry letter was um, him saying, how could you not see what I was trying to do with this piece? Um, at the, in, in the last paragraph, I hid an acrostic in the first letter of each of the, in, in, in each of the words in the last paragraph spells out uh, a code. And if you take that code and apply it to the rest of the short story, then you kind of reinterpret and reassess the characters in the plot. And so to him, it was this beautiful, elaborate puzzle. And she was like, I didn't, I didn't see it, honestly. Like, I don't, you know, I didn't know there was a code. Of note, potentially, Nabokov had color graphene synesthesia. So every single letter is colored to him. He, his wife, Vera, and his son, Dimitri, all had color graphene synesthesia. So what that means is that every, every, every writing, no matter where it is, on their keyboard, on text, in print, it's different, differently colored. Each letter has its own associated color. And if you look at that acrostic that he made, it pops out to him. It's obvious to him, potentially because it was a, a, pat, a color pattern. He saw it immediately when he was looking at the printed out text because he sees it as colored, whereas the editor and most readers don't. So like this, this idea that the New Yorker rejects your short story because they don't understand it might have been a phenomenological difference. But I think, you know, the, as you point out, and I think, as, as I understand what you're saying, and I'm doing my best, um, certain abnormalities, color and letters, inability to form pictures in one's mind, colorblindness, um, these are just dramatic examples of how the architecture of my brain is different from the architecture of your brain. I, I want to read... I want to read a quote from um, Wittgenstein. He doesn't get enough uh, credit here on Econ Talk. doesn't get mentioned often enough, so I'm, I'm very excited about this. Let me, let me see if I can find it. Uh, this is a letter from a letter he wrote to his sister. And uh, I described it. I sent it to someone. I said, this is the human condition in two sentences. So this is Ludwig Wittgenstein writing to his sister. You remind me of someone who is looking through a closed window and cannot explain to himself the strange movements of a passerby. 
He doesn't know what storm is raging out there or that this person might only with difficulty be keeping himself on his feet. And I, I really think that is, you know, that the less poetic version is uh, everyone's in a battle, so be kind. Uh, you don't know what people are going through, but this is an even more profound and foundational challenge of human interaction, which is, by definition, it's not just that you don't know what other people are going through. Other people are not just like you. This is a truism that would seem not necessary to observe. But if you kept it front and center in your mind, which I suspect someone like yourself is more prone to doing because you're so immersed in it, it can change the way you make your way through the world because you're more likely to remember that people are prone to um, activity, words, facial expressions that are not easily understood by yourself because they're not you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tom Nagel's What Is It Like to Be a Bat? They're the kind of what I take to be the uh, argument it's, it's a hard paper. that comes out of that. It's a hard paper. Yeah. yeah. And, and so what I take to be one of the, one of the arguments that comes out of that is this idea of just, well, we don't have the kind of underlying hardware. We're trying to understand, we're trying to mentally imagine what it's like to be a bit. We don't have the hardware to do that because our brains are kind of evolutionarily configured differently, but we don't actually have the appropriate units or ability to describe the degree of difference between human minds. So whatever that argument is about what it's like to be a bad and the uh, difficulty in actually understanding that, it applies equally to people. It, it applies equally, I believe, to someone with aphantasia and, who, and not, for example, someone with color graphing synesthesia and not. Um, it's equally hard to understand what it's like to see the world through those, those, those lenses because, like, you know, we, we, one of the difficulties here is the degree to which these differences matter, right? We want to be able to say, well, okay, sure. There's differences in how you see color. Okay. You see 3d or not 3d who, who really cares? Uh, you know, don't go to 3d movies, you know, Hollywood loses a couple ticket sales. Who cares? You like FaceTime. I don't. So we won't use FaceTime or we will. And, and, but who cares? I mean, it's not the essential thing. Right. But, okay. So, There's, I was listening to this one interview by a, um, a chip designer in Silicon Valley. And he was talking about how his visual imagery, so this scale of aphantasia to, there's, there are people out there that have kind of the flip side of this, which is very vivid inner images, such that they're almost as vivid as reality. Like, like, like you give them a scale and you say, okay, here's a picture, here's a, and then now close your eyes and imagine that picture. How close is it? to the picture as you're seeing it. And some people put it very, very close to just as it's perceived in real life, live. And this guy was saying, um, you know, this is a Titan in Silicon Valley. He's been doing this at like Intel, HP, Apple for a very long time, designing these chips. He's the lead of everything. And he's like, yeah, my, my dad used to make bridges. Um, so he was a bridge designer. He's been dealing with blueprints his entire life, right? He grew up surrounded by blueprints. And he's like, now I just make blueprints of chips instead of bridges. And he said two interesting things. One, he mentioned that when he is driving to work, his 
and he's imagining a chip design. The visual image of the chip gets so pronounced and strong that it interferes with his actual vision, with his ability to see. So he has to pull over to the side of the road because it's so strong. And so I believe he, I'm guessing from afar, never met him, is like a, so the scale, that aphantasia scale goes from zero to six. Zero is aphantasia, six is you see the image as live as it is in real life. He's probably a six or a five, right? If I, I cannot experience that. I do not know what it's like for my mental imagination, my visual imagination to become so rich and vivid that it interferes with my ability to move around the world. And then here's the interesting part. He then says, yeah, when I interview people, he's the head of this chip production of these major Silicon Valley companies. When I interview people, I put them in a room, I take away their cell phone and laptop, I give them a pen or chalk and a chalkboard, white, you know, marker and a whiteboard and say, draw for me a schematic of the last thing you designed that did not work. And which sounds like a great one of these, you know, tech riddle tests, right? But he is selecting for people that think like him. If it is true that he's selecting for people that can or cannot accomplish this task, this task is easy for him. This task is something that his brain was created with the ability for. You know, Magnus Carlsen, the greatest, highest ranked chess player in history, says he can practice on chessboards in his head. He doesn't even need a chessboard. He doesn't own one. I can like you know, if I do that, I can, I can hold on to an image of a chessboard and then it kind of fades really quickly after a couple seconds. I cannot hold the pieces in a stick position as I move them around or even abstract them out. I can't, and I can't so either, the question is but I to, can't even see them all on the board when I'm alive and awake and watching it in front of me. <laughs> you know, it's a very small space. There's only 64 squares and it is my vision encompasses all of it. And strangely enough, I can still give away my queen. It's a, it's a very, um, it's an illuminating uh, shortcoming. <laughs> right. And, and so I know, I kind of, I know the lowest hanging fruit of responses to this, which is like, oh, well, Magnus probably has an abstracted, compressed, you know, he probably doesn't see the chessboard. He sees, oh, I'm going to play Queen's Gambit or do a thing. You know, like he probably sees it in abstracted and therefore more efficient units of chess play, like opening it's compressed. But no, no, the, the, like, yes, it is true that people have tricks to uh, increase the efficiency of their learning. That is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is differences in richness and vividness of mental imagery. And how, you know, again, you can say, okay, well, great. He's, you know, let, let Magnus be Magnus. Let the time couples break up over FaceTime, you know, like let all these things happen. But when you're talking about there potentially being a kind of almost diversity higher quotient where people are selecting in almost a central casting way, not people that look like the job, but people that think like me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting addition to the difficulty of embracing and cultivating kinds of ways of thinking. So, so there's, a, there's a potential for this to be more than just interpersonal relationships, oh, yeah. to be more about, um, you know, I, I firmly believe anecdotally, but I firmly believe as a scientist, I will undo this opinion if I see the data uh, to the contrary. But I believe that people with aphantasia are more likely to be programmers. I, have, I, have, I, I just ask people now, I do all kinds of, uh, I, I do my own kind of non-invasive neuro <laughs> 
happening at cocktail parties now where I just go around asking people like what it's like on the inside of their heads, uh, whether or not they dream in color, which like a quarter of people say they don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because they don't have visual imagery on the inside of their You don't know? I have, I have visual you, imagery on the inside of my head. Um, I can see my w- wife and children pretty well when I want in my inside of my head. I don't know if I dream in color. No idea. How to me, it's so bizarre. Like it, and and that doesn't mean you don't remember them, right? Oh no, I, I remember, remember them vividly, that. especially since COVID. Since COVID, my dreams are but how awake and very vivid when I wake so, up. But it's it's just like every time I'm floored by this idea because to me it's like a first person video game. Like I'm it, to me, it's not distinguishably different than walking around during the daytime. Well, I'm going to, the next time I remember a dream, I'm going to think really quickly about whether it was in color or not. But I, part of the reason is I've never thought about it. Um, you know, I can remember dreams. Uh, I can remember dreams right now, certain dreams that repeat in my, in my experience. And I can't tell you if they're in color. That's weird, isn't it? That's, see, yeah. that's the thing is like, you know, talking about here I am, some guy in LA talking about consciousness and dreams, but, but, uh, you know, there, there's, you're not allowed to do that anymore in neuroscience. Like, yeah, you can be a sleep researcher, but, but the kind of Viennese in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, like they ruined that for us, right? We're not allowed to have this conversation. People will turn it off if we're talking about dreams, but this is fascinating. It's the only control condition for consciousness. It is astounding and does not have to be the case that there are within an individual brain, there's, two major epochs of wake and sleep and that when we're asleep, despite not moving at all, the brain conjures its own version of to be fully conscious, right? My experience is that I'm also, again, fully conscious in that state, which means if we embrace all of this hermeneutic translation difficulty of using language and these crude Babylonian neuroscience tools that we have right now, one of the best cleanest things to study is the fact that consciousness can pop into we have the control condition within ourselves every single night it's kind of remarkable um and just these little simple things like dreaming in color or when you close your eyes and you mentally imagine something how far away is it from your eyes and feet i have asked this uh, yeah maybe i can ask you before i seed you with with answers so like when you close your eyes and you imagine a picture of your wife and kids and how far from your eyes is it in feet? About a foot. Where is about it? A how foot. does it happen? It's about a foot away. But I think that comes and from... It, does it... I think that comes from looking at yeah. photographs of them. I don't know if I'd say that if I didn't have such a vivid interest in photography and so many pictures of my family and my... That I that I often see in our digital frame and thereby, I think, in my in my head, right? If you said to me, if I had no pictures of my children... And you said, what do your children look like right. when they were younger? I'm not sure I could find anything. Now I have a very vivid image of, my, of all of my children at various ages that I can conjure up whenever I want. That you think might be memories of pictures. I'm of 99% so, sure so, it is not my own memories. It's memories of photographs. The other thing, by the way, that your book says, which is startling to me, this is like the Dreaming in Color, you claim in your book, and I'm saying this like I'm a big skeptic, but you write in your book <laughs> that um, in dreams, the ca- other characters don't talk. Only the dreamer talks. Is this true? 
I have no idea. If you'd said to me, in your dreams, do, do the other people that you see in your dreams, do they talk? And I'd say, oh, I don't know. I never thought about it. I've never noticed. Do you talk? I don't know. I've never noticed. I have no idea. But you're telling me that when people wake up and remember their dreams, the only people who talk are the dreamer? Is that true? So that's that's a bit slippery, which is to say that's me um, cheekily in the book saying that no matter what's happening, your brain is doing the conjuring of that character, and therefore only you are doing the speaking. Oh, okay. So, you don't mean literally that, so, that if I'm dreaming about an encounter with my dad who has passed away two years ago, he could talk to me, but you're saying that's me anyway. That's what you meant. You are, you are, you are creating that conversation, both sides of it despite there being different cadences and, and different speech patterns and everything, you you know, so when I was in grad school, I used to have this, um, I used to make martinis for my, my guests in my apartment and, and, and I guess for myself when I treated myself to one. Uh, and I would do this thing where I would keep a list. I was, I was bad at making these things and I wanted to make like a scientific protocol and just kind of keep an archive of what I had done. And I wanted to be a bit experimental with them. So I made the, over the years, these like this long list and I would put the, um, the ingredients and the method. And then I would have an objective and a subjective column for the rating and I would rate it. And I would have everyone who tried one. I said, I'll, I'll happily make you a martini. My only request is that you rate it objectively and subjectively on a scale of one to a hundred when it's over. And what I found so interesting was that most people, uh, 90, I think 100% actually of, of uh, people would give different numbers for objective and subjective. I don't even know what the question and, means. I'd have been a terrible guest. I would have said, what do you mean objective well, so and subjective? <laughs> I've only got, well, I've only got so, subject. Although, hang on. The only, the only way I yeah. can relate to that is I saw Top Gun Maverick on the plane a couple days ago. It's not a good movie. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it immensely. Mm-hmm. So if, is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, actually. So, so what I mean is, for example, some people know that they don't like cranberry. But, you know, like they, they have experienced in their life that everyone else seems to like ingredient X or flavor X, and they just know that they don't. And so the martini comes and it's flavor X. They would say, okay, well, objectively, I'm pretty sure that most people would like this, but I personally don't. Or the divide the other way, which is what you just said for the movie, which is like you can enjoy something immensely and allow it to be a bad movie. So you might give it an objective lower rating than you personally were like, you know what? I'm hypoxic. I'm on this plane. We're at 10,000 feet altitude. It's really fun to see Top Gun while on a plane. Uh, you know, I'm going to give it a subjective rating of higher than higher than I imagine I'd, the whole world would. I'd give it an eight and a half, and even I, though I saw it on my phone. They, they, they didn't even have – so would you say Top Gun Maverick's a good airplane movie? Most people would say, oh, it's a horrible airplane movie. You got to see it on a big screen. Not only am I seeing it on yeah. a small screen, they don't have screens. They had used your own device to, to and tied to their right. Wi-Fi, and I still loved it. I'm giving it an eight and a half. Well, that's the, that's the thing. To your point about chessboards, how you don't see all the pieces at the same time, when you're staring at a screen, you know, your brain treats it like it's – as big as you need it to be, you know, your brain's very good at, at kind of, um, uh, expanding, <laughs> expanding experience, uh, uh, relevantly. And so on this martini list, I would always give the exact same number for objective and subjective, because to me, it's like, well, let's, let's unpack what we mean by objective. What we mean by objective is I mentally model what I believe the world would do 
I mentally model in a theory of mind way um, what I believe other people like or dislike. But to the point about it's only you doing the speaking, that, that mental model of the objective world and what the preferences of the objective world are is fundamentally just still happening on the inside of, of your head. Right? So, 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 so it has to be the same, yeah. the same answer. So I, I, I'm going to shift gears because there's too many good things we're, we're not going to get to. Although, uh, and I don't know if anyone's still listening. I'd be happy to talk with you, Patrick, for, for another three or four hours if I, if I didn't have to get home for dinner. But I don't want to miss some of the really cool parts of this book. So uh, you say that medieval castles, which have those slits in them for shooting arrows so that people could hide in there and no arrow, they could shoot the arrow out, but it'd be really hard for an enemy down below to shoot back through the slit and get you because it requires a level, very high level of precision. That has nothing to do with the slits. And you could you explain that and explain what we learned about the brain from that? Because I thought that was extremely cool. Yeah. Um, so, so one one piece of context is that th- these nineteen chapters are just to to explain to the kind of listeners. Uh, each of these nineteen chapters is an attempt to explain Anna's surgery and her answer back from you know earlier in this interview. Um, as if you believed in a modern one of the modern theories of consciousness or some of the smattering of a, of a few. And so each of the chapters is kind of me, ghostwriting might be a slightly inaccurate term, but kind of ghostwriting as if I'm collaborating with the person whose idea it is or whose theory it is. Um, were we to explain Anna's surgery and her answers, how would we do it as best as we could? if you believed in that one way of thinking about the thing. So the chapters are actually, there's contradictions in them. Like you, I'll say something and then say the opposite somewhere else because people believe different things. To me, I, I wish to embrace that complexity. People believe different things. So if you're giving a kind of survey of modern consciousness research, you should reflect the fact that people think different things. And so that story comes from Sidney Brenner, Dr. Sidney Brenner, the Nobel laureate, uh, who was a contemporary of Francis Crick and was one of the, uh, I think, the popularizer of C. elegans, the the worm as a model for neuroscience. So he, I think he won like, he might even have two Nobel Prizes. He at least won one. Um, and he was contemporary of Francis Crick who and good friends with him, who Crick, after a lot of all of his work in genetics, kind of went over to the dark side and started to study consciousness. Right. This this tends to happen in kind of twilight era of people's career because it's you become you become concerned with mortality and death and you start to think what is life and what is not life. This is these kinds this of is like Newton trying to understand the music of the spheres, the the, the noise and, yeah. and that the planets made when they rotated on the spheres that they were suspended on. It's a very common phenomenon. It's fascinating, actually. Go ahead. It is, and and the old uh, Newton spent the last twenty years of his life trying to. Um, solve alchemy. Yeah. It's like like uh, uh, Einstein spent the last twenty years uh, trying to do that uh, unified constant or whatever the, the thing is, a cosmological constant, maybe. And you know, like people people do the wacky stuff at the end of their career. And I'm, uh, you know, um, anyway. So it's true they have tenure. They have the you know they already have the Nobel Prize. They can turn it in. You know, they can pawn it if they need to. Um, and so Sidney Brenner, I think, got 
just got so sick of listening to these people get fascinated by consciousness. He thinks consciousness is not a problem that is, is definable or worth even thinking about. He's a worm guy. He's an evolution worm and history guy. You know, like he's, he, he spent his entire career staring through microscopes at worms and just thinking like, they probably have it. Who cares? We're just a bunch of worms stitched together. You know, the thing that we think of as thinking, the thing that we think of as consciousness is just a bunch of worms together in our brain, kind of like moving against each other. It's just a bunch of neurons. It's a collection of neurons, a bag of neurons. And so that anecdote about, or that, that kind of history lesson about these castles and these beams, which I'll explain in a second, came from Sidney Brenner. So I went to interview him. He was kind of uh, basically... He had had, he was old, he was getting old and he was on oxygen and he decided to kind of retire to the Shangri-La suite in Singapore, where they just gave him a suite and were like, do whatever you need. Like, we love you. Uh, people had heard of him. He, he had, he had helped introduce, um, uh, science education into Singapore as it was kind of transitioning into a more modern cosmopolitan place. This is going to be... And so he was well-known. This is going to be a movie there. with a nine, objective and subjective. This guy on oxygen yeah. who was a Nobel Prize winner into worms who had a huge impact on Singapore is sitting in the suite at the Shangri-La. So go ahead. So you go to interview him. Yeah, so I'm there for a couple of days and we just talk about consciousness and brains and, you know, and <laughs> it was so remarkable because, you know, he... He's in a wheelchair on oxygen and he was still, he would spend every single morning trying to discover new things about genomes. Like he would sit there and compare different aquatic genomes. He didn't, he wasn't just lazing about. He didn't have a margarita and stare at the sunset. He, when he grew up, the idea that you could have a magical box where you could type into that, a data, you could type into it. Think about, you know, he, he, he was a student in the 40s and 50s. And now here he is. He can type in the name of an organism and it spits out his genome. When, when he was studying with Crick back at Cambridge, there was no such thing as this, right? So he's, he is the equivalent of kind of like he was ecstatic every single time he would look at the internet because he did not take it for granted at all. And he's like, oh my God, there's so much still to be discovered. And I can literally like trawl for a genome of any creature and organism I want on the entire planet, that was that was that gave him such joy that he spent the last few days, I think, of his life just tr trawling through genomes. And um, and so he told the story about how he thinks consciousness, and he thinks when we try to give a purpose to a modern brain like a human brain. And we say, oh, this, this is for this reason. This region of the brain is for this. His, his idea is that we are caught in a kind of cognitive bias. Because if you, for example, look at the way that castles were built, you, you need to understand that they did not have kind of scaffolding in modern construction equipment or design or anything. That they would build these wooden scaffolds and then they would have to layer the castle bricks atop of it. And that when construction was done, they had to remove the wooden planks and that, and all of these, and that when we look and see these arrow holes to shoot arrows out of, that, that was those were actually just where the planks were, and they had to remove them, and then they didn't know how to fill in the hole. So you end up with all these holes, which we, from hundreds of years, our vantage, our expert vantage, 
hundreds of years later, are like, oh, look at that very intentional, purposeful hole that they must use for function. And sure, you can shoot arrows out of it. Yes, it got co-opted. Yes, it's now co-opted to be functional and maybe even useful. And it looks like it was designed that way. But if you go back and look at the historical origin of it, it is not for the reason or purpose you think. And so he applies that to all of genes, all of biology, that consciousness is not what we think. Consciousness is like those little arrow holes. We're giving it, you know, he thought my whole enterprise was bunk. He was like, you won't even, you don't even have a definition. Um, You know, he's very much a believer in kind of randomness and chance and at the human capacity to explain is is um, one of our kind of biggest weaknesses, actually. Our, our, our need to explain yeah. is one of our big biggest weaknesses. Yeah, and yet he devoted his whole life to trying to understand stuff. So, well, um, but as a as a historian, without with as little interpretation yeah, as possible, I hear you. with with as little assumption as possible. So let me. So I think that was his. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. I asked Alan Lightman, and that I should have asked Agnes Callard. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago when I interviewed her, and it's, it's, that episode hasn't aired yet, but um, it will by the time this episode airs. Um, we're, we're, we were talking about, I would say, in both those interviews at some point, uh, futility. So the world is going to come to an end. The sun will go out. And if we go to other solar systems, other galaxies, eventually the universe will slowly lose its heat. And, you know, I always put a footnote, this is for people who don't believe in God, uh, don't have a mystical uh, perspective on life. It's a, it's a materialistic view, and, and of course it could be true. Um, and, and both Lightman and Callard are interested in life's meaning. And so Agnes was making the case for why, uh, why we... Uh, how we find meaning in being part of the, in her case, the enterprise of discovery, the enterprise of, of, um, of exploration, and that even though she m- may end up not having any ancestors 10,000 years from now, th- she is part of a great chain of human effort to understand our, ourselves, and she's very uh, that gives her life meaning, as, as I think would be fair fair to say. And my question is, why do we care? And this is what I should have asked her. I did ask Alan Lightman. Alan Lightman, his answer was basically, it's just a byproduct of, of our consciousness. Um, there's no reason that we care. It's just something that came along for the ride, which is the, you know an answer a materialist, or I think Dr. Brenner, Professor Brenner would also give. Brenner? Um yeah, so it, it, the fact that you're going to die, the fact that life is finite, the fact that the human species might be finite, the fact that life on Earth might be finite, why, why should that trouble a human being? Shouldn't a human being just enjoy uh, life while it's alive, while he or she is alive? And why do you care that it that there's meaning to it? Why would you care that there's purpose? We're, we're just animals in this view of the world. We're just material creatures. Uh, the product of evolution, uh, as you point out a number of times in different chapters, we're just trying to keep from cooling off through, which is what death is. Death is when our temperature just goes down so far we, we're gone. It's over and our relentless effort to stay warm through uh, movement, food, and um, activity is eventually futile. It's over. So we all know that most of us. Um, 
it's reality unless you're religious. But if, if you're a materialist, that's it. So why should you just enjoy it? Why would you care about virtue? Why would you care about ethics? Why would you care about meaning and purpose? And 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 I think I don't, I don't want to be unfair to, to Alan Lightman, who who I have great respect for, but I think his answer was basically, eh, you're just it's just a piece of your software that you get stuck with somewhere along the way. What are your thoughts on that? Um. Back with the story with Anna, I, I skipped over this moment, or, or, or I, I said something um, very definitively, and I think really that that phrase, that sentence, is is the heart of the matter, which is said: the brain is uncomfortable saying "I don't know." Right? The surgeon is stimulating her brain with an electrode her laugh and they're asking her why and every single time she gives a reason confabulated or not real or not the interesting thing one of the interesting things there to me is that the brain never says i don't know when i ask myself why do i like you know i could come up with a list of the things that i do the things that i like for some reason um uh, you know, the things that make me me, the things that people who are in my social circle and my friends know me as the person who likes doing X or Y or Z. And I say, why? We just don't say, I don't know. We always give story, structure, and purpose to something. And I, if I reduce it down to the brain being a learning machine, I think I have a very simple explanation I could imagine a very simple explanation, which is that when you're tuning, like so these new modern AI systems, right? The way that they learn, they kind of tune different variables and weights and they just keep learning and learning and learning until they've got this kind of complex, highly tuned system of, of variables. It's like a long, it's like a long if statement, basically. Um, and the thing that those AIs need more than anything is outcome. When you don't, like, like, let's say that they're trained on chess or go, they need to know that a given move is for a reason down the line or else statistically it's meaningless. Yeah. It's divided by infinity. It means nothing if they don't have outcome, if, they, if you're not trained on success, if you're not trained on something. So one possible explanation is just simply that I don't know is not a useful answer for learning, ever. So confronted with a mysterious experience, confronted with uh, something inexplainable that either happens to you or you hear about, the least comfortable answer is, actually, I don't know. Because you can't learn from that. You don't know, um, you know, at the very least, if you start to believe you experience something, let's say you're proto-caveman, you're experiencing uh, a ball lightning or, you know, a storm. And the question is, why did that storm happen? And if you just say, I don't know, there's no theory to then disprove with later inquiry. What you want is some, some semblance of an answer. For example, oh, there's maybe there's a higher, higher being, higher force. And then at later times, you can begin to unpack, oh, actually, now I have evidence against that or for that. But if you just keep saying, I don't know, then you have nothing to compare against. 
when you're learning, you're trying to evolve and iterate proof and disproof. You need an underlying theory to work against. You need a story to begin with. The brain is not is is terrified of the absence of story. So my my guess is that the reason we have so many um, non-physicalist, non-reductionist explanations for things is that we don't know how the world works down on every level, but the brain abhors a story vacuum and will always give a reason. In the same way, Anna always gave a reason for why she laughed. She never said, I don't know. So when you hear a door creak, you're, you're alone in your large house and a window closes or a door creaks up on the second floor. It's probably because of like temperature gradients and air currents and you know some pressure has changed causing the door to slam to equilibrate. That's the real reason. But the way your brain interprets it is, oh, maybe someone's there. Or there's a ghost or there's something, you know, something that it gives the story. It gives a plausible confabulated story. And you can imagine just expanding that at scale up and up and up to get many religions or kinds of thinking or magical thinking, or, you know, I live in LA, you get astrological thinking, you get all kinds of interpretations of cause and effect and interpretations of meaning and interpretations of story. So I think fundamentally, these come from possibly come from the fact that we're a learning machine. The brain is a learning machine and that it doesn't learn on, I don't know. It would rather be wrong than say, I don't know. But that doesn't explain why well, I can't just enjoy life. And many people can, by right. the way, many people can, I think they're, you know, I've, I have a colleague who likes to wonder whether the unexamined life is not worth living. It's sort of a credo for the philosopher, but many people have unexamined lives that are quite satisfied, quite pleasantly uh, surprised. And um, it, I think for many of us, we can't go get there from here We're, for whatever reason. And I would not begin to give one because this book forces you to be agnostic about your reasons. But um, we don't like, many of us don't like the idea that we're no different than an animal that seeks pleasure and avoids pain. Uh, and we want to have a higher purpose. We want to matter. And it's weird. Why should we want to matter? Just have a good time. Life is short. Enjoy yourself. Uh, I find that conclusion. But we, al we always matter. We always matter for a story. We always matter for something else. You know, death is the end of the story. Death is the, that's what's, so, to me, so terrifying about it. And I think to the brain, so terrifying about it, is it can't, death is the end of its ability to give confabulated reasons for things. Um, so and this so, is why you know, death is terrifying? Because I can't tell myself stories anymore, right? It, that's an interesting argument. So. That's a very yeah. interesting argument. Well, and, and it requires that the brain's most... The, the, its, its strongest driving force is this, to generate and tell stories to itself and to others, et cetera. And so like, I, I think that's what's so existentially terrifying of the, the void that came before and after uh, is just like, there's no more story. But that suggests, by the way, it seems to me that people who are not good storytellers, who don't live, just like there are people who have better visual images inside their brain and people who, who don't, there are also people who are better at confabulating and those who aren't 
The people who can tell really great stories should be more terrified of death and be less happy. And the happiest people are those who are not afraid of death because they don't tell good stories and they're not afraid of dying because that's the end of the storytelling. Not so important for them. What do you think? There's a funny, like, there's this funny question, philosophy 101, like, would you live forever? And I know people who are so uncomfortable in their modern life and body and self that they think about ending their own life decently, like highly successful people that, you know, they, they, they contemplate this often because it just seems like a perpetual pain. Yet still, if given the opportunity to live forever, they would. And they don't even care if it's as a head in a jar with just like a Twitter feed piped in. Like they just want to know. And this seems contradictory, but there's, there's, I think there's something to, to, to our earlier point and your point specifically about this kind of like default mode of forgiveness. You kind of have to forgive that contradiction and maybe actually start from the premise that it's not a contradiction. So that's not hypocritical. So what is the actual difference? Why, how, why, how could you both want to live forever and end your own life? And, or be miserable, just to make it easier. If, if you're miserable, why would, you know, it's like the army food. The portions are small. The food's horrible and the portions are too small. That seems to be the conclusion right. here. It is. And I think it's because even a sad story is a story. Hmm. I like that. And... And, and we like sad stories that we don't just want comedy. We like yeah. drama and tragedy. Absolutely. Not sure why. Just but. all of it. <laughs> uh, uh, let, let's yeah. close. I want to close with two things I don't want to miss. I, I just want to say, by the way, that this book, uh, often when I interview an author, I, my goal is to capture the essence of the book so that the reader can get the, the main ideas and ideally some extensions that emerge from the conversation with the author. And we've gone way far afield here. So I just want to say, which I've enjoyed immensely, but I want to say that if you have any interest in these kind of topics, this book is is a beautiful book. It's not just a, fa- it's a fascinating book, but it's also a beautiful book. The style and and um, tone of the writing is is full of wonder about the human experience and what it's like to be a human. So I, I would encourage anyone who is interested in these kind of questions to read Patrick's book because it is not like most of the others. And it's not just because he doesn't have an axe to grind and he looks at 19, he has 19 axes to grind. More than that, you grind them very beautifully. So I just want to make sure that I said that. I'm sorry I said it so late in the interview when we might have lost some listeners, but a few people are still listening. Um, there's a remarkable story you tell that gets to something I've been thinking a lot about, which is the soldier in, uh, I think it's in Iraq, who uh, is driving someone on a relatively deserted road and just has a sort of what appears to be a panic attack and says, I don't like this, and turns around. Just talk about what happened there and uh, his ex-post explanation and and what you learn about that for, for what you call intuition. Yeah, um, so... I, it, I don't. I don't have access to grind per se, but I do have like um, pet peeves. Um, one of them being, oh, there's like the reptile brain. Of course, it's not a reptile brain unless you eat insects as a as a kid. Um, you just never have that. You're 100 percent a human brain always. We we've co-opted a bunch of 
genes from a bunch of different organisms. We are a panoply of all of life together in one thing. But once you're a human, you're a human. There's no reptile brain. You know, we use 100% of our brain always. That silliness about 10% or that movie Lucy with Scarlett Johansson where she ascends. Um, you know, and there's like a, a card throughout the movie where it's like the amount of percent of her brain she's using and she slowly gets to 100% and can bend all of space and time around her. Um and another pet peeve I have is is trust your gut. Um, you like do not trust your gut ever, um, unless you like you know need a sack of highly acidic fluid to dissolve something very quickly. Like that's what it does. Um, what you're trusting is your cerebellum, which is hanging off the back bottom part of your brain, which contains probably two thirds of the total number of neurons you have. You know, these estimates are kind of dynamic and changing, but there seem to be about, if we have, let's say, 80, 80 to 90 billion neurons, uh, the cerebellum is about 50, 40 to 50. So it's a huge chunk of our brain um, with respect to the, if you're just looking at individual counts. And that part of our brain is basically, I think a nice way of describing it is it's paying attention to everything that has ever happened to us. And it's encoding it in a way that we don't have access to, but it does. And we take for granted the like ability to, we do something. Let's say we play chess for the first time ever. You play tennis for the first time ever, Tetris for the first time ever. The next day, we're better at it. We're slightly better at that thing. We're slightly better at language the more we do it. We're slightly better at when we move to a new city um, the next day, day two. We're slightly better at understanding and knowing the area and terrain. What, what, like, it doesn't have to be that case. That is a remarkable feat of, of, of intelligence and capacity. And it's the cerebellum that's doing much of that kind of listening and watching and, and, and learning from everything you have ever done. And so you're not trusting your gut ever. You're trusting your cerebellum. That's where intuition comes from. And so this story was told to me uh, by, by the passenger of the car. So he was in the intelligence community. He was a high-ranking member of the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community. He was in Iraq. Um, and he was being driven around by a Navy SEAL in a Humvee between two of the U.S. bases. I think this was around 2008 or so. And the driver uh, was, I, I think, a Navy SEAL um, kid, 20, adult, but kid with respect to uh, how this guy described the story. And he said... They're driving in the armored Humvee as fast as they can, right? And the guy slams on the brake with no warning, makes a U-turn, and drives back to the base they came from. Visibly shaken, something tipped him off. And the person I'm interviewing, the IC intelligence community member, says, why did you do that? And the guy's like, I don't know. That moment's interesting, right? He, he allowed himself to say, I don't know. I love that. I love when people will admit that they don't know. And in a situation like that, it's even more fascinating because that kind of vigilance is something you, you want to both train into people kind of in various different vocations. And then also, um, you know, we want to understand where that's coming from. Like on a, on a methodological level, you almost want to be able to give people more. How do you, how do you give people more situational awareness? How do you train into someone that kind of intuition? Um, and so what he had done was trust his cerebellum, right? And he turned around. And hours later, uh, the IC guy asks, okay, it's been a few hours. Why did you turn around? I need you to tell me. 
and and the driver says that he drives that road every single day and he noticed that there were no kids playing soccer on the side of the road and some part of his brain thought that was wrong didn't know why and now with a little bit of ret- like uh, retrospective ability to he had a few hours now they're back at the originals he said you know what maybe they're not playing on the side of the road because something's up and the the moms know and they you know there's a community knowledge that something is up it's kind of like in in maybe in vietnam when it, um you you hear the stories of ptsd not for sounds but for silence because all the creatures in the forest know something's up when a raid is about to happen they get silent so people get scared and are traumatized by the sound of silence not the sound of machine guns or people similarly i think this guy had a had a observational response to there being no children playing on the side of the road where he was like, something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. There's, there's this other story of a race car driver who um, bend in, a, in the road, right? Like a very sharp turn. And if you watch the video of the professional race car driver, he, um, and there's a horrific accident right around the bend, but it was blind to the driver. No driver should have reasonably at 250 miles an hour been able to know that there was a huge accident here. And the guy, if you watch the video, um, stops before he's even, he's even able to see the accident. And people asked him later, how did you do that? Like, it looked like, like, did you have knowledge forewarning? Did you know this crash was going to happen? And his answer was, I turn, I, when I drive, um, the audience members in the crowd are always looking at me. When I was approaching that bend, I noticed that every face was turned to look on the other side at the accident. And he's like, I don't know what that means, but all I know is they're not looking at me and they usually do. So I'm going to stop. Something's wrong. People, all these people are looking at an accident or they're looking at something. So I'm just going to stop. So in both of these cases, what I find so interesting is that these were not explicit rules that were trained. This, this, this driver, he's a military man. He's a special forces. He's very, very highly trained. They did not say ever explicitly in like a, in a rule-based way, if kids not playing side ro- of side of road, then turn around, right? Then danger. But, but the brain picks up on these things. And the only way the brain can pick up on these things is if it has paid attention to everything that has ever happened before. Notice in each of those cases, the description is, every time I drive this road, this is what's there. Every time I uh, drive this race car, the people in the stands are looking at me. That's what they're here for. Um, And so the, the brain is noticing these distinctions. And to me, what's so beautiful about that is that the conscious explanation comes later. And so when we're talking about consciousness, what is consciousness? Where is intelligence or thought or intuition in the brain? It's so interesting that what's happening is consciousness kind of picks up the debris of behavior, of, of, of quick, intuitive, rapid behavior, and then tells a story about it. And, and to me, the, the heart of my book, the, what I hope people respond and come away from 19 ways of looking at consciousness with is this idea of like, who is the storyteller? What story are they telling? What genre is it? <laughs> and um, can we trust it? 
And I, you know, I think we mostly can, but it's fascinating to ask when we can't. My guest today has been Patrick House, who has a really interesting brain, and it's been a privilege to share part of it through reading his book and talking to him during this conversation. Patrick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This was fascinating. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.